When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and, well, the Masters is over for another year, and uh, we congratulate Judd Trump. Uh, an extraordinary final in many ways. Um, Mark Williams played the best snooker, certainly, to get to the final of the two of them. He played wonderful snooker, and was, I think, justifiably the favourite going in. But the final is its own entity. It's the only match where there's a trophy up for grabs. It puts pressure on both finalists, and Judd Trump found something... He found inner steel, he found tenacity, he found grit and determination and was, I thought, really impressive staying with Williams and then, of course, at the end, did produce an excellent finish. He started well, of course, went 4-1 up, 7-6 uh, down, that was the big frame, the next one, 58 minutes, Trump gradually took control, it was absolute granite actually, laying snookers and just playing really good tactical snooker. Mark Williams did make a century in the next, but th- that that uh, marked a sea change because, of course, had Trump lost it, he'd have been eight six down, and at that point, I don't know. I think it would have been hard to see him winning actually. But the fact is, he did win ten eight. We didn't quite get the decider that uh, maybe we'd been hoping for. It was uh, a very interesting final. It had uh, five centuries. I think that was kind of overlooked in all the sort of talk at the end. You know, that's a lot of century breaks for one match. Um, there were some tactical frames. I thought it was good to have a close final. You remember tournaments by their finals um, quite often. And uh, I don't think it was maybe a, a vintage Masters necessarily, but the end was gripping and engrossing and thrilling. And ultimately for Trump, very satisfying because he's proven something there. He's won a tournament without being at his best necessarily. I mean, he should have lost to Ryan Day really in round one. He could have lost to Barry Hawkins. Didn't play great against Bingham really. But the point is he kept the belief. And that's the thing true champions, it's not about when everything's going well, it's about how you cope as well in adversity. Trump has had to put up with, and of course we live in an age where other people's opinions are instantly accessible, whether you want to hear them or not. He's had to put up with a lot of nonsense from people when he was on that sort of imperious run of winning five, six storms a season. Whenever he won a tournament, some dim bulb online would tell him he'd won the wrong one. Oh, well, that isn't, you know, you've won the, the German Masters, but you haven't won the UK Championship. You know, it wasn't the UK Championship that week, it was the German Masters, he won it. Um, all nonsense. 
Uh, he, he is a great player. He's won a load of titles and he'll win a load more. And now that he's won the Masters, his confidence for the rest of the season must be sky high. And as I say, not least because how he's won it, it hasn't been naughty snooker. Actually, he's very well behaved, <laughs> in fact. Now, there'll be people out there saying, hang on, didn't you tell us Sean Murphy was going to win? Well, yes, I did. Uh, of course, Sean was um, well beaten, I think it's fair to say, by... Stuart Bingham, these tournaments now are getting increasingly difficult to predict. And I, I've stuck my neck out and, you know, was, was duly humiliated for it. Um, when I put a little tweet up before the event began, who's going to win? Basically, every player in the field was mentioned by somebody. Quite a few went for Williams, it's got to be said. And quite a few went for Trump. So congratulations if you did predict the winner. Uh, but I thought, uh, regardless of all that, the final was very interesting. We've had a couple of emails already flooding in. Alpha Bonzi has uh, done his usual uh, very sharp questions on, on it all. Uh, he says, After an incredible week at Ali Pali, my three quick questions are, has this week been enough to take the headlines back from the Chinese match-fixing scandal? Well, I'll answer them one by one. I mean, it, it did, here's the thing. I thought the media actually were very responsible during the week. They covered, the broadcasters and the written press covered the, the match-fixing story. But then they sort of drew a line under it. They didn't keep bringing it up every day. They let the snooker take centre stage. I think that was important to do that because there was nothing new to say anyway um, about it all. We'll find out in due course, you know, what's going to come out. But they let the snooker actually have its have its moment. I thought that was good from all concerned. Um, so it did take the headlines away last week. But obviously this is a different week and they'll come back at some point. Number two, after doing next to nothing this season, besides reaching the champion of champions final, how has Judd Trump managed to get the trophy? Well, I think I've sort of outlined what I think about that. I think he's shown that strength of character that, you know, great champions in sport have, which is belief, self-belief when things are going badly. You need a little bit of arrogance, actually, to think, I'm better than my results. I'm better than the other players. You have to think that. Um... You look at some players who've won fewer tournaments. Do they really have that belief? I'm not so sure. But I think Trump does, and I think he's, he's proved it there. And the final question from Alpha. Well, in fact, there's two more. Uh, is this Mark Williams' last hurrah? Uh, I wouldn't say that, actually, um, because, I've, as I've said before, when, whenever you think one of the class of 92 have had a last hurrah, they seem to have another one. So, OK, he's 48 in a couple of months' time, but he played brilliantly. He's obviously very confident in how he's playing. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that this is sort of the end of him in a big in a big match at all. And Alpha actually says, for a fun bonus comment, we'll see how fun this is. <laughs> a few episodes ago, a correspondent commented on the lack of diversity on the World Snooker Board. Could they kill two birds and all that by co-opting a member of the Chinese Snooker Association to the board, thereby solving that problem and easing fears about the future of the game in China by strengthening ties? I have to say, it's not the worst idea. In a way, it's surprising that they, they hadn't already done that. Really. Um, have someone representing Asian snooker. But I think in terms of all that, you know, it will play out how it plays out and then maybe a few solutions will be looked into um, and that will take a bit of time. There will be more, more emails coming later. In fact, we'll, uh, we'll do Callum Law now because he's also talking about the Masters, just emailing in the aftermath of what I felt was a great Masters tournament, but in some ways a funny one. Judd Trump won it, but in many ways it was Mark Williams's tournament. His performance throughout the week was terrific and getting back to a Masters final 20 years after his last was a great story. I felt the final was excellent overall, with a great blend of frames, plenty of one-visit snooker, somewhere both players had chances, and that near-hour-long war of attrition, which was gripping viewing. In the end, it was a superb display from Trump. In the final, he produced a complete package. He hung in and battled with Williams when he had to, but when 
Chances came along, he capitalised. I can't really pick faults with Mark's performance either. For me, both players were so evenly matched, it was always likely to come down to the odd shot here or there in the closing frames. It'll be interesting to see what impact this win will have on Trump for the rest of the season, while the passing of time seems to make no difference to Williams. It'll be five years in May since he won that remarkable third world title, and he looks like a go to the Crucible again as one of the main protagonists. Lastly, on a different note, as a BBC viewer, it was great to hear Dennis Taylor back in the commentary box. I always enjoy his range of quips and anecdotes, and his passion, enthusiasm and love for snooker always comes through in the commentary. Thank you, Callum. Well, yes, big Dennis, obviously uh, former Masters champion, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone could doubt his, his love of snooker. He's uh, been absolutely steeped in it, in all kind of areas, playing and punditry and just a general personality for decades. Uh, thank you for those uh, those views. One other thing I would add about the Masters, uh, Marcel Eckhart has, has, I think, become now probably the best referee in the game. I thought he did a superb job in the final. It was his first Masters final. You know, there's a lot to think about in that tournament because there's a huge crowd and obviously they get a bit bit rowdy, particularly in the evenings, particularly in the final. I thought he handled it very well and uh, there was just no issues at all. And that actually went for all the referees last week. All did a fine job. Uh, it was a great week, I thought. I thought the... Uh, the way it was promoted, the way it came across, um, it looked like a must-have ticket. And tickets have already gone on sale, of course, for next year and are selling well. Uh, it was a good week for snooker. As I say, the actual tournament, you know, what would you give it out of 10? I think I would give it close to 8. So that's a good score. But it wasn't an absolute knockout every day. And that's kind of the other side of having a tournament that's one table. I mean, we always say every match like a final, you know, quality over quantity all the rest of it but the, the sort of drawback of that if you like is if you get a couple of duff matches you can't hide them away there's no table two to go to you're just watching that one table and it wasn't all great but it was perfectly enjoyable as a tournament and there were some really good matches along the way and the final definitely I think improved the mark overall for the week so uh, I enjoyed it and I think the Masters has really has really continued to shine continued to move forward um and yeah, it was uh, it was a good week uh, for snooker, and of course we continue into what will now be a very busy period in the sport. So to the emails, and we start with one about the Masters. It's from Matt Price. Let's see if the price is right. <laughs> a little joke there. Anyway, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for the great podcast. I always thoroughly enjoy the pod when it drops each week, and the insight and humour you offer into the game and other subjects. Thank you, Matt. Apologies for the, the joke about your name there. Uh, I've just returned from a great trip to the Masters on Monday. The tournament goes from strength to strength. The buzz of a sold-out crowd on a Monday afternoon is hard to match in any event, I would say, and testament to the organisers on what a hot ticket this has become. A couple of minorish quibbles, though, on the setup. The merchandise stall remains poor. It's the same old tat wheeled out event after event. Why not produce some merchandise that actually has the Masters on it so people can get a proper memento of their visit? For example, I'm a bit of a fridge magnet geek, and I always like to pick one up from travels or events. I'm sure many people would buy something, and they would likely sell a lot more than they do now. The food offerings in the venue are limited, and always seem to consist of the same old German sausage stand, and an offering of pasties, sausage rolls, and sandwiches at the bar and coffee stall. I feel more can be done here. I have to say, just breaking in there, Matt, that sounds delicious to me, but anyway, I, I get your point. Uh, also, the toilet facilities felt very cramped and the water wasn't working properly. This doesn't seem to be the case when the darts is on there. Maybe more can be opened up. But overall, it's a fantastic day and I'd recommend to anyone. Finally, one question on a statistic that's often shown in a snooker match, the long pot statistic. 
what actually constitutes as a long pot? Is there a specified distance for this? Well, on that point, I believe the answer to that, and people have asked this, I believe the answer to that is eight feet. So anything, either the cue ball is eight feet away from the initial red, or the cue ball's close to the red, but the red has to travel, or the, the object ball anyway, has to travel eight feet, maybe into a far corner pocket. I believe that's the, the answer. Um, I mean, all these stats... They're interesting. I think maybe they're, and I'd be guilty of this myself, slightly overdone, slightly overused. Pot success is an interesting one because not every pot is of the same difficulty, but they all count in terms of the same. You either pot it or you don't. Some pots are more important than others. Obviously, you know, a frame ball, a last black in a frame is more important than maybe the first red. And also, sometimes people come to the table and they're 80 behind. Maybe frame one, they'll do a bit of potting practice. You know, they're potting balls, but they don't matter. But they count towards the pot success. So I think the, the statistics are interesting. Maybe they should come with a health warning. Uh, in terms of your uh, visit to Ali Pali, you make a good point that, you know, on a Monday afternoon, to have that atmosphere is fantastic. And I do think World Snooker Tour have done a terrific job with the Masters. It's a magnificent, as you say, hot-ticket event now. Um, the merchandise, yeah, well, we've talked about this before, and I think the general view is that there could be more... Let's look at the Triple Crown, OK? They, they, they pushed this like, like, like nothing before. Why not have Triple Crown merchandise? Some sort of smart T-shirt or something with a reference to that on. If, you, if it's going to be a thing, make it into a thing you can actually make money off. Um, and I can't speak for the food and all the rest of it, but um, it seems sounding like you enjoyed your day anyway, which uh, is uh, obviously good news. Now, still on the Masters, Joe Richards. Now, he was on our fan special, so uh, he, he might have views himself on, on Ali Pali. But anyway, he says, um, I was wondering the logic behind putting on the main matches during the day at the Masters. Is the schedule a random draw? If not, surely Ronnie O'Sullivan playing in the afternoon all week while people are at work doesn't make sense. Why not put the best matches on during the evening? Well, Joe, this is done for the host broadcaster, in this case the BBC. Now, all television companies who are host broadcasters will have a say into the various schedules of the different tournaments that they um, broadcast. In the BBC's case, their main programme every day is on BBC Two in the afternoon. In the evenings, apart from at the weekend, they were on the iPlayer and the, and the Red Button. So they weren't on live on a channel as, it's, as such. So they wanted the best match for what would be the biggest audience, which would be the main channel. However, you, you, the point you make is a good one. You know, people are... <laughs> typically at work in the daytime, and are missing out on what arguably could be the best matches. You're never quite sure what the best match will be until it's played. But, for example, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Williams, was on Thursday afternoon. A lot of people made the point, had it been on at night, obviously more people could have watched it. What it means is, and the World Championship's different, because there's so many sessions, you can't really do it there. But the UK Championship and the Masters, Ronnie O'Sullivan, let's say he won both tournaments this season, OK? He would only actually have played two evening sessions, and they would be the last sessions of the two finals. Every other session he was scheduled to play in the afternoon, which I think would strike a lot of people as slightly wrong. Um, but that's the reason. It's nothing to, I've heard people say it's to, to sell more tickets in the afternoon. It's not. It's for the host broadcaster. They want the, what they consider to be the big names, the best matches on in the afternoon. It leads into, I mean, there's always discussion about the BBC. I think it's, it's not a very nuanced discussion. Like all sort of major institutions, people seem to have extreme views about it. So a lot of people will give them stick whatever they do, and a lot of people will defend them whatever they do. I think it's possible to believe two things at once. I think it's possible to say, is it beneficial to snooker to be on the BBC? Yes. I think you could also ask the question, would it be more beneficial if there was more high-profile evening coverage rather than just on iPlayer? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think you can believe both, thing both things. Um, for example, the first day of the Masters... 
BBC Four in the past has shown some evening coverage. It didn't this year. They were showing at seven o'clock when the first match, Mock Selby, Sam Vafai on the evening started. They were showing an episode of Come Dancing from 1979, a repeat of a 44-year-old edition of Come Dancing. Did that really have to be on then? <laughs> I, I, I would suspect not. So maybe that would have been an opportunity right at the start of the tournament to just advertise it a bit more. However, back in the day, I mean, in the, in the 80s, there were examples of primetime Masters coverage on BBC One, literally 8 o'clock, but they would only show it for half an hour until some sort of sitcom. Let's say Don't Wait Up with Nigel Havers and Tony Britton. Uh, there, there's one for the teenagers. But they would they would show it for half an hour, but then you'd have to wait two hours to see the rest of it. You couldn't press a red button or go to the iPlayer or go to Eurosport or anything like that to watch the rest of it. So it is better now. You can watch the matches. But in terms of the benefit of, of being on the BBC, you get a general audience. Obviously, it's a bit more niche if it is just sort of hidden away a little bit. So, But that's the answer to the question anyway, um, why they put the so-called best matches on in uh, in the afternoons. Andrew Robson, he said, I love the podcast despite only dipping in and out intermittently when I get a spare hour. Here are my three predictions for the world of snooker in 2023. And these are big ones, I have to say. Number one, John Higgins retires. He said he looked rather forlorn after his master's exit. Number two, in all the three triple, all the three triple crown winners will be at least 40 years old. And number, th- and number three, Jack Lazowski finally wins a tournament. Uh, it'd be nice to see John Higgins win a biggie and go out on a high, mainly because it helps with my predictions. I don't think John Higgins will retire, I've got to say, Andrew. Um, you know, he's still, as we speak now, in the top eight. Um, and there's enough events, I think, you back him to, to come good in. Having said that, we're not going to see much of him in uh, the next few weeks because he's not in the World Grand Prix, which means he'll probably miss out on the Players' Championship unless he has a really good Welsh Open. Um, so it's been a bit of a season to forget. It's not over yet, though, is it? You know, we we know these class of ninety twos uh, have a have a tendency to come good. Gavin Boyd writes. He says on today. This is about last week's episode. On today's post bag podcast, there was a question about trophies and where they're kept. I had the joy of playing a few frames at Mark Allen's home club in Antrim a few days ago. Uh, this is over January. Mark and Jordan Brown's practice tables in the general room. And trophies are all on full display, including Mark's Masters and UK Championship trophies. It's a great place, very welcoming down-to-earth club and top-class tables. So I was saying that uh, Stephen Hendry used to keep his trophies in a club, and it seems Mark Allen and Jordan Brown do the same. Uh, Gavin says, I've only just got back into playing regularly in the last year or so after a 30-year break, and have discovered the passion for the game again. I was a regular snooker scene reader back in the 1980s, and I'm delighted to have the podcast now to keep me updated and informed. Well, that's Gavin, and welcome back. That's quite a break you took. Cliff Wilson years ago. He didn't play for 15 years. Uh, he was a leading amateur in Wales and, and, and very uh, very uh, talented. The Judd Trump of his day in some ways. Judd Trump maybe crossed with Mark Williams in his day, but uh, took a long break and eventually had a sort of uh, quite successful professional career. First ever World Senior Champion. I know you didn't write it about that, but I just thought I'd throw it in. Now we have a, an email here from Mark Williams. Not that one. <laughs> Another one. It says, firstly... I must thank you for the great podcast. I really look forward to it each week. And always have a chuckle to myself when you laugh at your own comments. Well, there's no one else to, is there? Uh, He says, I'm writing this after watching the battle between Judd and Ryan Day in the Masters. Great to watch, even though it wasn't the high standard of play. I was nervous for Judd. I get jittery and nervous for the players. Great Masters so far. And my prediction is the winner of the Ronnie O'Sullivan or Mark Williams match with Ronnie as favourite. Well, uh, Mark, I hope you didn't put money on that. <laughs> he says, I completely agree with the comments from your last episode regarding Stephen Hendry's Q-tips. It's a breath of fresh air and really likeable to watch. 
So this is Stephen's YouTube channel that I mentioned, and he, in fact he's put one up uh, recently with Steve Davis, which is a bit of a must-watch. Mark says, I saw Stephen play a number of years ago in Aberdeen at a Premier League event, and he got beat. Neil Folds held out the microphone to him, and he walked straight past off the stage in a mood. Grumpy Stephen. I remember Steve Davis got 120 break the same day, and Ronnie also played great. Story from here in Shetland years ago, before I was... Before I was here, Kirk Stevens and Alex Higgins were playing in the local Legion, and trays of drink were being taken from a pub across the road, as the Legion didn't have an afternoon licence at the time. Late at night, they were fighting with some of the locals in a small nightclub, called Posers, and got kicked out and banned. Alex also, I'm going to say urinated here, it's not the word you use, but, uh, you know, we're sort of a family show. He said, Alex urinated in a plant pot in a local hotel, in full view of everyone. What a man. <laughs> Yes, what a man. Uh, my wife's grandfather saw Dennis Taylor and others here another time, and they put on a great show. I've loved snooker all my life. I can remember watching finals from the late 70s and onwards, including all the classics, i.e. 1985, etc. I enjoy snooker more than ever now, especially the Eurosport coverage and commentary, having all the current and ex-players commentating and giving their analysis brilliant. I can't pick up a favourite. Eurosport is great, although my wife would disagree. I intend to, I intend to attend the Crucible in 2024, hopefully for the semis and final but I'll settle for whatever tickets I can get. As it'll be my first and possibly only visit, I'll get the best tickets available. Any tips on when and how is best to buy them and what will be the best ticket options? I think they go on sale the morning after the final and will sell out quick, I would think. Hopefully, I can meet a few players or even stay in the same hotel as some of them. Any tips regarding this? It would be an honour to meet them. I'd like to buy my namesake, Mark Williams, a pint. think I'm the same, same age as him too, but he's three weeks older. Uh, anyway, cheers. And for now, any recommendations or tips can be emailed or messaged to me direct if they can't be aired. Well, no, we'll air them, Mark, who lives in, I believe, in, in uh, as I say, the uh, the, the, Sh the Shetlands, the Orkneys, that, up that way, so uh, very very far north in Scotland. But uh, in terms of where they stay, uh, they, they tend to stay in different places. Some tournaments, there'll be sort of one hotel. Sheffield, what I've noticed over the years is people tend to players tend to book apartments because then they're not kind of in the in the middle of the throng um they can sort of do their own thing um what you don't want to do is be booked into a hotel maybe for the first week find you're still in the tournament and then all the hotels are booked so players quite often stay in apartments but they're very accessible you'll see them around around the crucible they've got to walk in they'll stop at stage door wherever and and, and you'll find most players mark williams included will be uh, very um approachable in terms of uh, you say here about uh, you so the cruise with 2024 obviously that's next year well uh you, you, the tickets uh, there is a priority window now i'm not here to do to uh, to um do world snooker tours pr for them but uh, i'm helping a, a listener there's a priority window okay so this is the information I have on this. The priority window, you have to register by April the 29th, okay? The following day, that is the day where you can get priority tickets. So this is ahead of the general sale. The general sale is May the 1st, but the day before, April the 30th, if you've signed up for the priority window, you can actually get tickets ahead of the rush. And to do this, if you go to the World Snooker Tour website, there is a, a little form there you can fill in. Uh, as I speak, the story is on the the front page it's easy to find which is not always the case when it drops off the front page but if you sign up um you can uh, you will get an email and a, and a code so you're in the priority window you can book the tickets on april the 29th before they go on general sale on may the 1st and i believe if you subscribe to the world snooker tour q news newsletter which again is on the front page of their website you're automatically part of all that i know that because i got loads of emails last week about the masters because i'm signed up to that newsletter so hopefully um, if you check all of that out, Mark, you will uh, you will be able to 
slightly get ahead of the game in terms of getting tickets, and hopefully you will uh, you will enjoy that. And he sent me another email actually. Uh, he said uh, because we were talking about irrational hatreds, and I like this because he doesn't give any real reasons. He said uh, my irrational hatred of a player used to be Peter Ebden. I couldn't stand the sight of him or watch him play. <laughs> well, of course, he was in the audience last week uh, for the Masters, watching uh, supporting Jack Lazowski, of course. Mark says, these days, it's Ali Carter. It just is. Well, <laughs> sort of one in the eye for Ali there. Again, no no uh, explanation. But anyway, I'm sure uh, we can get past that. Alex writes, I'm Alex Whiting from Maidstone, Kent. I've been a l- By the way, uh, sorry, I- I'll get on to your email, Alex. Great to hear from Mark there. We've heard it from a few people. Um... They've come back to snooker. We heard it from uh, our colleague Gavin, who uh, had taken 30 years off playing. Mark saying he enjoys it more, more than ever. So there is, there does seem to be a certain buzz around the sport at the moment, which is good news, of course. Um, anyway, Alex Whiting from Mason and Kent. I've been a lifelong fan of the sport. As a child in the 80s, I was somewhat against the grain, as Steve Davis was my absolute hero. And my parents tell me I used to be very upset when the Nugget would suffer one of his admittedly rare 80s off days. Well, you, you're in good company there, because... Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins would have been two players who were big fans of uh, of Davis. Ronnie tells a story. He watched the '85 final, the the, the conclusion in, in the, with snooker club pals, and they were all <laughs> very much supporting Dennis. And they were literally shouting at the TV. Forget, forgive the phrase, but this is I'm just uh, recounting what he said. They, they were shouting at the TV, "Miss it, Ginger!" when he was on that black. And of course, he did miss it, and Dennis won. But Ronnie was gutted. He was a big Davis fan. Uh, winners like winners, don't they? Anyway, Alex says, My question is about the evolution of the attacking side of the game. Watching the Masters this week and seeing the likes of Trump, Lazowski and Vafai potting them off the lampshades has really been a joy to watch. So I wondered if one of the great tactical players like Davis in his 80s pomp could tie up the modern gunslingers enough to get opportunities and win enough frames. I realise this is an old chestnut. Could Borg beat Federer? Would Bradman handle Joffre Archer, etc.? But I would love your views. Thanks for the podcast from a lifelong lover of snooker. Well, Alex... Yeah, it's difficult to just sort of transplant one player from one era to another, not least because Steve Davis really is the reason that we have the professionalism in snooker. He was the first one to really take that mantle and, you know, do the practice, put the work in, treat it very much as a profession and establish the sort of professional standards that other people followed. Stephen Hendry followed them and after Hendry, of course, the other great players followed them. Davis was maybe more attacking than people remember. He was the first player to make three centuries in a row in a match, the 1988 international final against Jimmy White. Um, the game was, in general, a bit more cautious then. But you know, people. But at the end of the day, people had to pop balls to win frames. It wasn't all safety. He was a master tactician as well, great all-round player. And let's not forget, you know, he was in the top 16 when he was 50, so he, he had a, a long career at the top. Um, but it has moved on. I mean, Steve actually is one of the first people who says that. Steve Davis would say, you know, the, the players are better now. The, the, the sort of approach is different, I think. It's more about sort of trying to get the balls open earlier, maybe, and score hev- more heavily. But Davis made the first maximum. He made a load of centuries, over 300. He was maybe more attacking than people gave him credit for at the time. Um, what, what they were sort of bored about, as you alluded to, is they kept winning. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's because he was really good. Now, Wayne Griffiths, uh, who, of course, is a coach out in Hong Kong, and his father won the Masters and among, among other tournaments. Uh, he's written a long email, which I'll read out here, because there's uh, some interesting stuff here. He said, I hope my email finds you well. As always, I'm still very much enjoying your one-man snooker show, and you continue to make a difficult job seem easy. Well, thank you, Wayne. The monologue at the end of the Masters preview episode was, in my humble opinion, right on the mark, in terms of how all stakeholders could give more consideration to smelling the roses. 
I have to say that didn't last long, judging by um, <laughs> a lot of what I read last week. But anyway, you know, we, we, we do our best. He said, Wayne says, in a market for sports and general entertainment that has seen burgeoning demand, we, the sport, have to try to see the strengths of our sport and build on them, rather than jumping on any negative aspects that present such easy and often unchallenged targets on social media. Continuous improvement is always the goal, but this is much harder if we're only focusing on talking about what is wrong instead of how we can prove it. Keep spreading the roses, Dave, and hopefully you will keep us keep dragging us all along to the proverbial rose garden with you. On to a couple of coaching development-related questions. In the light of recent comments about the old guard and off the back of another classic match at the Masters between Mark and Ronnie, with an apparent lack of new challenges coming to the fore, I wanted to ask a question or two about your opinions on development, development and coaching in snooker. OK, so this is question number one. Are there too many distractions for young players today and will they be prepared to make the sacrifices and produce the focus and graft required to reach the standards we've seen from players in the past? You've talked recently about the class of 92 and how they are still at the very top of the game. Other players from late 90s and noughties fill a lot of the other gaps at the peak of the sport and young special talents coming through, as they did in the past, seem to be a distant memory. They said that China would put this right, but the rankings and recent events have shown us that for various reasons this has not materialised, with only a few of these young Chinese players currently challenging for events. Coaching and equipment have apparently advanced and young players today get the opportunity through the internet to learn from online videos, recording matches and commentary like players from previous generations could only dream of. So why are players from 30 years ago still dominating? As a coach fortunate enough to work with young players and therefore witness firsthand the distractions they now face in terms of education demands, social media, gaming and a plethora of influences on their spare time, do you think there will ever be a time when young players can be as dedicated as Higgins, Williams, O'Sullivan, Murphy, Bingham, Foo, Selby were, which is clearly what's needed to prosper in an ever more competitive main tour? Or do you think it's a reduction in local snooker clubs, amateur events, junior events or the current seating and draw format have a significant influence on making it harder for young players to thrive early in their careers before going on to greatness? What are your thoughts? Well, that's only question number one, Wayne. I, I think this this whole this email actually could, could fill a whole episode, couldn't it? But um, in general, I mean, you, look, I'm wary about sort of someone basically middle-aged, i.e. me, sort of talking about what the youth do. But there, it is true that there are more distractions. The nature of society has changed. Um, I was struck at the Championship League, the, the summer version. I was commentating on a group. It was Ali Carter and three young players, all kind of new players in their early 20s. And I was struck by the different approaches. Ali, despite what our correspondent said a moment ago, is a terrific player, uh, proper percentage player, very knowledgeable um, good tactician and he basically played that game but the three young players all essentially went for everything and it occurred to me a couple of times a couple of sort of real low percentage pots were taken on it's almost like players are conditioned now to want to pull out the Hollywood shot because in the back of their mind they're thinking oh well that might go viral you know that'll make me seen that people will see me playing the, the, these great pots snooker's actually about doing the boring stuff it's about, I mean, you look at the way Mark Williams beat Jack Lazowski. I'm not saying the match was boring, but he just controlled it. He just controlled it um, and used his knowledge and his tablecraft. And so much of winning tournaments, Mark Allen this season, not all been razzle-dazzle stuff, far from it. It's been playing good percentage snooker. Breaks, yes, but also the safety stuff as well. And Ali Carter won that group very easily because he just played the right way. Um, I think younger players maybe are learning more slowly that game. Um, I mean, even Jack, you know, has learnt a lot in recent years, but maybe not quite enough. Um, so it seems to be taking longer. It's not to say they won't come through, 
but they're not coming through as quickly as they were. Um, what difference access to all the different sort of coaching methods makes, I don't know, because ultimately you have to find something that gives you confidence in your own game, and it's difficult, and the standards have risen across the board, so, you know, a middle-ranking professional now can, can school a young player, whereas maybe before they would have rolled them over, a player coming through would have rolled over the world number 50. Now the world number 50 could win a ranking event. Um, so it has become more difficult. It takes a lot of dedication to say, I want to basically spend six, seven hours a day in a dark room potting balls with all the other things going on. Just turning your phone off for a couple of hours to a lot of people is a big, big step, you know, and not, not being distracted by all of that noise and stuff that's going on. But if you are dedicated enough, you can come through and, and it takes special people. And we've seen special people become champions. Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, these sort of people, they're special, they're dedicated. They're not quite like other people. Um, so it can still happen, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're all on the lookout for new stars. But, you know, the problem is that the, the established stars are so good. Second question from Wayne. To overcome the issue above, are the WPWSA and other continental federations doing enough to develop the game at grassroots level around the world, not just the UK? Under the auspices of the WPWSA, I believe there's only one global junior event arranged each year. The WSF Junior World Championship event soon to be played in Sydney. Though I'm aware that the continental federations also run junior events, although sadly not all of the junior events offer a path to the main tour. Coaching and development in snooker has grown in recent years, and thanks to the dedicated work of Jason Ferguson and Chris Lovell et al., there are now over 500 coaches listed around the world with the WPBSA. However, given that there are around 29,000 PGA golf coaches listed in the USA alone, all with a strong playing ability proven by handicap and a three-year training program behind them, is there enough being done to develop snooker grassroots level globally? And if not, what could be done to improve this so that the next generation of superstars, preferably not all from the UK, as the class of 92 were, are given improved opportunity to carry the flag for our sport through to 2050 and beyond. With so few qualified coaches and hardly any junior events, is it realistic, especially given our sport's hard-to-shake questionable reputation, that we can ever hope to compete for participation rates and sponsorship levels with sports such as golf and tennis, unless more time and money is given to development outside the top 128 players in the world? Along may the Snooker Scene podcast continue, and thanks for taking the time to read my email, even if you decide not to share it. Regards from Hong Kong. Well, Wayne, I have shared it. <laughs> and uh, you make some good points again there. I mean, in terms of... I'm always a bit wary about trying to compete with golf and tennis because it's they're, it's, they're very different sports. A, they're established in America, which means they have a massive access to a particular sponsorship and a particular sort of media that we don't necessarily in snooker. They're also quite middle-class sports, so there's more money naturally sort of in them and, and more you know, upmarket sponsors are attracted to them. In terms of participation, I mean, people will say that more people now play snooker around the world than before, and I'm sure that's true. It's how they get good, isn't it? And the point you make is a good one about grassroots. It's, it's all very well being the best player in, let's say, I'm going to pick a country just off the top of my head, Bulgaria. But how do you make the step from being the best player in Bulgaria to getting anywhere near the level you would need to compete on the main tour? The answer at the moment is you have to move to Britain. <laughs> to play the better players and if you get on the tour base yourself there to play on what's supposed to be a world tour but it was actually almost entirely based in Britain not everyone can afford to do that which is why we've lost people like Eagle Figueredo in Brazil he can't afford to come over to play in the UK and there's a lot of other people in the same boat so one really positive step I think was the WPBSA and World Snooker Tour 
coming up with this 20,000 prize money guarantee, a lot of players from outside the UK will use that to pay expenses. Um, and that's important, I think, because it is actually giving them some sort of chance of, it's not a level playing field, but some sort of chance at least of turning up and giving it a go. And we've seen players who've qualified through these international routes who are now playing in tournaments, whereas before they might play in a few and then you'd never see them again all season. So that's a positive. But obviously it has to start much younger than that. It has to start with the juniors. And obviously, you know, it involves investment. But investment means you need money. Where does the money come from? It's very difficult um, to sort of, you know, shake the money tree and expect suddenly everyone in the world to get great snooker coaching. It's not straightforward. Um, somewhere along the line, the link has to be kind of broken with this sort of UK-centric approach that we have. But how that happens, you know, is another matter. Um, and how much money there is realistically to spend on the coaching scheme. I, I agree with you. I think they've done a good job. Um, and there are more coaches available now, but maybe not as many as, as with other sports. And like, like with any sport, and snooker is highly technical, you need that grounding. You need that grounding in technique. You see it in a lot of the top players now. That's why they've had long careers. It's been there from day one in terms of just what they, they know what they're doing when they pick up that cue. Um, and a lot of people maybe watch snooker around the world and want to stop playing, but don't really have from day one that knowledge of actually how to go about it. I must say, I would like to see, I mean, I think the Cook Q School actually did two events this year, but I would love to see a Q School event for players, maybe, let's say under 30, and 30 is not necessarily young in sport. So that there is a pathway directly for young players. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of it is sink or swim. And, you know, it's not any guarantee they're going to have great careers, but just get them on the tour in the first place and, and establish themselves. I'd, I'd like to see that. And, and we are seeing in, in the World Championship and, and, and we've seen the shootout as well. Younger players are being brought in to give them the experience. Ben Mertens, he's, you know, that happened to him and he's now on the tour and, and he's looking a really good prospect from Belgium. So maybe if we're interested in the sort of the, 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 the future of the sport and younger players from around the world, maybe that's one way to uh, to help that, maybe we could even have a tournament, you know, just for young players. But then it's the same old problem as with every tournament. Who's going to sponsor it? Who's going to broadcast it? How, how are you going to pay for it? And that's what it always comes down to. Um, but I think the WPSA overall are doing a good job on the coaching side. I have to say that. And, uh, you know, I, I know Jason Ferguson is very passionate about constantly spreading the word to as many people as possible. And, and Wayne, you yourself in Hong Kong are, are doing great work there as well. Uh, we're going to wrap up there. Um, the World Grand Prix will be underway pretty much when you hear this, straight into the next event. It's the 400th ranking event. So how about that? The 400th ranking event. As with anything in snooker, it's not quite as straightforward as you might think because the first, you think, okay, well, when was the first ranking event? Well, it was actually the 1975 World Championship, except nobody knew at the time because the, the ranking system was actually backdated. <laughs> Um, because they thought, well, we need a ranking system, and they went on the World Championship. It was the only tournament then. In fact, it was 1974, not 1975. So Ray Reardon, by the time 1976 the rankings were established, Ray Reardon had been number one for two years, but sort of no one had told him. <laughs> um, so 1974 World Championship, that was the first ranking event, and we're up now to number 400. Um, maybe just to pick out some highlights along the way. So the 50th ranking event was the Asian Open 1989 in Bangkok that Stephen Hendry won. That was the start of the sort of Thai snooker boom. He beat James Watanar in the final, which was a big deal. 
The 100th for the International Open 1995, John Higgins beat Steve Davis in the final there. Uh, the 200th world ranking event was the Malta Cup 2007, Sean Murphy beat Ryan Day. And number 300, and this will uh, upset a few people, it was the shootout 2017, Anthony McGill beat Zhao Gudong. So a lot of uh, well, different tournaments there, but um, anyway, we're, we're up to the 400th. It's only taken five years to get there from the 300th, so it shows you the sort of increase in tournaments. And, of course, it's for the top 32 on the one-year list. Um, it's kind of unique, this player's series, in as much as the defending champions don't get in the tournaments. Now, there's an argument to say they should. That's that's an argument for another day, maybe. But I've heard some people say that they should, um, because winning a tournament, maybe that's the benefit you should get. But at the moment, it's it's off the one-year list. And, of uh, course, it's ITV4 in the UK, Matchroom Live and other places uh, all around the world, Eurosport in Europe outside of Britain. Um, it's in Cheltenham at the Centaur, and the ticket sales have been good. And, and one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that, I mean, in previous years, this tournament has followed another ranking event, and the the field has not been known until the night before, and that affects ticket sales because people don't know who's playing when. But people have had a, a good few weeks to buy their tickets, and hopefully it'll be well supported. Lovely area, of course, it's in the, the Cheltenham race course. There's a little convention centre in there, the Centaur, and... Uh, Looking forward to another week of snooker. It's quite difficult, I think, to follow the Masters, but um, I think within a couple of days, all will uh, just settle down. It'll be another tournament, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. You can contact us at any point, uh, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. I expect this week to hear more about the uh, the match-fixing stuff and all that. I think we're going to hear more news this week, so uh, not ideal in the middle of a tournament, but it's, it's got to come out sometime, and it should come out as well. Let's be clear about that. Um we're proud members of the Sports Social Network and all the rest of it. So anyway, the Masters is done. We're, we're, we're straight into the next event, and that's how it should be. We're right in the thick of the snooker season, and uh, I'll be back to ramble on about it all next week. For the now, though, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.